0: Hey everybody, good to have you back for another episode of The Taste. So we started the podcast in April, 2018. Been doing this a while. And one thing I've noticed is that certain names seem to come up over and over. And one of those names is our guest today. Her name was mentioned by Paul Hobbs, Dave Ramey, Tim Mandavi, and one or two others. And I'm thinking this is someone we've got to get on the podcast. So I'm very happy that today we're talking to someone who's had a big impact on winemakers in our region. And as it turns out, in places around the world. We've got a lot to cover. So let's get started. Hey, everybody, uh, welcome back Doug Schaefer, another episode of The Taste. Um, We've got a great, great, great winemaker friend, mentor Zelma Long here today. She has been around a long time she and i run into each other i've never spent much time with her so i'm jazzed about today she is one of the true pioneers in the quest for top quality wines she's mentored many many great winemakers who a few have been on the taste before she's forged a path for all of us zelma been really looking forward to having you here thank you
1: thank you doug it's a pleasure
0: so tell me where were you born what year Give me the give me the early days.
1: I was born in 1943 in the Dalles, Oregon, which is a town east of the Cascades and uh, dry country, sitting on the Columbia River. Sounds beautiful. Great river. Any vineyards? No vineyards. Cherry orchards. Cherry orchards and a lot of uh, wheat fields.
0: Okay. And brothers, sisters? Only child. Only child. What And mom and dad, what what'd they do? They were teachers. And you growing up, sports, activities, what were you into?
1: I, I fell in love with horses. And so uh, mom and dad bought me a horse. I had a friend who had a ranch. Uh, we kept the horse up there. We rode out across the hills many, many times. It was an unstructured playtime. That's
0: fantastic. It was. And you took and you took care of the horse. You're was
1: you responsible? I was responsible, but I didn't take care of it on a daily basis because exactly. we lived in town. The ranch was about ten miles out. And from that ranch house you could see Mounted Mount Adams and Mount Saint Helens and the Cascades. It was the most oh, amazing location.
0: That's it's gorgeous country. It is. So, was wine part of the
1: home, home scene? No. Um, my parents, and I think this is true for their generation, they drank cocktails. When we got together with relatives at Thanksgiving or Christmas, um, everyone would have a cocktail. They'd be playing poker. <laughs> so, there was n- no animosity toward alcohol. And no one ever got drunk. Hmm. So I didn't know that, that existed until I was in college.
0: <laughs> yeah, college kind of does that for everybody, doesn't it? Yes, it, it does. <laughs> no matter where you came from. That's not
1: so. for me. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been... Well, I think I got drunk one time, not badly drunk, but disoriented in Burgundy. Burgundy. I went to... Um, a wedding okay. of a young Burgundy woman who's, and the, f, it was at the um, Clove show. It was so extraordinary because they had wines, and they have uh, Corton Charlemagne. They had wines going back 40 years wow. that they served Chardonnay, white Burgundy, and red Burgundy. And so I probably had a little. Too much. And it wasn't a problem. I was staying with Jean and, well, Francois in their guest house. <laughs> uh, the only problem was I couldn't get the door to the house open when I got there. So I had to sleep on a bench by the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're
0: right. I don't. Right. I don't think never forgotten that. I, yeah, I don't think you were drunk. I think you just, you know, had trouble with the door. <laughs> I... I, I, I <laughs> Anyway, okay. I, w- I grew up with
1: a, a sense that alcohol was a normal part of life.
0: Good, good. I'm trying to think if I've ever slept on a bench. I've slept <laughs> in the back of a car a couple of times. Anyway, um, so after growing up, so college, where, where was college?
1: Oregon State University in Corvallis. I started in home economics with a minor in nutrition It was the nutrition that was really the focus, and I didn't care for home economics, so I switched to general science, even though my advisor said, Selma, if you want to be in science, you need to be more focused than general science. But I was able to get the chemistry and microbiology and uh, molecular biology, which I loved, um, that I needed for my nutrition work, and I also had time to do liberal arts courses. Like in, I think I took all hmm. introduction courses. Introduction to philosophy, to art, to music, to geology, to accounting. So I had a, a broad education, which I really have appreciated.
0: I, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm a bit jealous because... I did the UC Davis and viticulture, oenology, and it was pretty much straight science and math and not a lot of room for electives. And yeah, I've got, I'm very fortunate I get to travel around the world selling wine. I'm in beautiful places and cities and museums and, you know, just a couple of art history classes. Just, you know, I I kind of wish I would have had that. Wouldn't be wonderful. So I need to go back. So after, um, so you're at Oregon State and, um, when when did the wine thing happen? Was it was it college? Was you, were you drinking wine in college or?
1: No, I wasn't actually. Beer was the alcohol of choice, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't. I wasn't a party person. But between my sophomore and junior year, I had an opportunity to go to the Bay Area and work in the Department of Nutrition at UC Berkeley, hmm. and. At that time, I met my future husband, Bob Long. I went back and finished at Oregon State in 1965. And his parents um, started to plant vineyards in Napa Valley in 1966. Wow. I, meanwhile, was working as a dietitian at UC um, Medical Center, UCSF. But I thought, well, um, if they're going to have a vineyard, maybe I can learn how to make wine. Bob had introduced me to wine. And one time, his parents had a summer house up in the hills above St. Helena in Anguin, And he'd made dinner for me there. And the wine he'd served was Sue Green Hungarian. (laughs) And I, it's amazing, I still remember it. It was the first wine I ever had. I thought it was delicious. Really? Green Hungarian, I love it. I'm still not sure the source of that named grape in terms of its history, Mm -hmm. but it was grown by Jerry Draper, who was an early vineyardist. And he grew... Uh, grapes for lee stewart and suvering and i found out many years later that at the time those grapes that made that wine those grapes were 50 or 60 years old they were old grapes wow and that's why that wine was so good
0: it's amazing
1: yes it was
0: that's pretty cool so green Hungarian. That was your. That was the first wine that Bob introduced you to, and um, that was the start for you. Yes, so, it was. And so, were, were you guys married at that time, or soon to be? No,
1: no, no. We had just met.
0: Okay, I see. So he was wooing you with green Hungarian. He was wooing
1: me with green Hungarian. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so you went back. That was your internship during college. So you went back and graduated.
1: Correct. We we married right after I graduated, and I moved down to the Bay Area and um, started work as a dietitian and worked for about three years. When Bob and I, he was at a break in his job, and we thought we'd like to go to Europe for several months. So I basically quit my job. (laughs) And we did. We went to Europe. And then after we returned, we moved up to the Napa Valley.
0: Because his folks had property on Pritchard Hill. Is that correct?
1: The property that we stayed at was in Angwin. Got it. The vineyard that they planted in 66, 67 was on Pritchard Hill.
0: Okay. Wow. That's great. Because, you know, no one knew Pritchard Hill. Those were the old days. Those were the old days. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, you, you guys moved up here, and um, you continued with the wine bug.
1: I did continue with the wine bug. I actually went back to school at UC Davis. Okay. Because I already had my science background, I could slip into a graduate program in enology and viticulture, which I did.
0: Okay. And so you're at Davis getting your master's. Correct. And I think you got a phone call.
1: I got a phone call from Mike Gurgit who at that time was the enologist at Robert Mondavi Winery. And this was August of 1970. He said, you know, I need some help for harvest. You've been recommended by one of your professors. Oh, can you come to work? And I said, no, I have to go back to school to finish my degree. And my mother's visiting.
0: <laughs> well, you're very responsible. That's
1: good. <laughs> He called me the next day and said, "This is going to be a great experience for you. You'll learn so many things that you don't learn in school but are related to what you have learned. Why don't you come and work with me so I did
0: wow so that was for that was an internship for just a harvest.
1: He hired me as Harvest into, yes, and I was sampling tanks and doing some very simple analytical work for him. Did you like it? I loved it. Yeah, it was. uh, It was early days for Mendov. He they opened that winery in 1966. They were still trialing their presses. They had brand new stainless steel tanks temperature-controlled, they had these rototanks for fermenters. But at the same time, when Mike interviewed me, what he had been doing was tasting through a small group of barrels. The barrel room is what is now the office. (laughs) And he was tasting each barrel to determine what variety it was. (laughs) Wow. Because someone hadn't labeled them
0: Oh, they hadn't labeled the barrels. Oh my God. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, but of man. course, Mike was an experienced enologist. He'd worked uh, ten years with Andrey Telichev mm-hmm. at Bolieu and worked in different wineries before that and actually got his degree in Enology and in, in Yugoslavia's Young man, right, right. So he knew what he was doing, but it was still sort of not a systematized wine making situation. <laughs> kind, of,
0: kind of the wild west, yes, it was early days west. in Napa.
1: It was fascinating.
0: So, well, so so you did the internship. Then did you go back to finish your masters at, in Davis, uh, well, or did you just start working?
1: I I realized the first harvest that I did in 1970, we crushed 1,800 tons. And I realized that Mike could use an assistant. And I was correct, the second year, we crushed 3,600 tons, doubled. Wow. But, so I wrote a job description for what I thought he needed. And I um, attached my CV, which was very robust, and they hired me. <laughs> so year one, it was uh, intern, year two, I was, Part-time. Year three, I was full-time. And year four, Mike left.
0: Wow. So basically, <clears throat> didn't finish your master's, just stayed on at Mandavi. Mike was gone. You took over. So did you take over as head analogist? I did after he left. And, um, you know, I was, we moved out here in 73, but I remember... In the early days, Mondavi was the cool new thing. They were doing good stuff. As I got into the industry, it was like Mondavi was a pioneer. Mike, I was always curious, who was driving it in the early days as far as technology with stainless tanks and cooling, cool fermentations and barrel fermentation? Was it Bob Mondavi or was it it Mike? Bob
1: Mondavi certainly had the vision for... The tanks and the use of barrels because he'd traveled in Europe and seen, uh, gained some ideas. So he he drove that when the winery was built. Right. But in terms of the winemaking itself, Mike drove the winemaking and the winemaking decisions.
0: That's cool. You got to work with him for two or three years.
1: Yeah. That's great. It was a great learning experience.
0: <clears throat> so were you with him? Because there were? I think at the time the Chardonnay was the big, you know, he's known for his wonderful Chardonnays forever. Um, but the, a lot of the new technology and new methods of dealing with Chardonnay kind of happened right in that era. So I'm assuming you had a front row seat for it with it.
1: I had a front row seat and we had some beautiful grapes. They were f- fermented in stainless. And aged in barrels, and some of the fermentations were done in barrels. But their Montavi was also incredibly strong in Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Their sixty-nine Cabernet won some major competition that I'd in in California that I had forgotten about. So. Okay they were focused really on fine Chardonnay and fine Cabernet. Right. And, and tasked with finding those grapes. And when I know when I started in 1970, there were 19 wineries in Napa Valley. And the vineyards were mostly mixed varietals. So we often had to um, harvest Carignan, or more of a drill with the Chardonnay and Cabernet will brought in because that's what the growers that's had in their had. fields. <laughs> you want her Cabernet, you take her yet.
0: So you're there at 73. You're the chief enologist, and but were you who had the winemaking title? Not that it matters that much. Was that the Tim? The Mondavi's
1: always kept the winemaking. The Mondavi's always title. kept
0: it. So yeah. Tim did got it.
1: I, I don't. Tim wasn't there at that time. Tim came, I think. Around 75 or 76.
0: Okay, understood. And uh, meanwhile, though, you've, you and Bob, you, you, got to, you guys started your own operation, Long Vineyards.
1: We did. That vineyard that Bob mm-hmm. Sr. planted, which was Riesling on the advice of Jim Leiter, the county extension agent, and a little bit of Chardonnay, proved to make beautiful wines. Uh, Ten years later, Mike Gergich had made some lovely Rieslings from the fruit, and Mike and Arlene Bernstein had purchased some Chardonnay after seeing what Bob and I made as homemade wine. (laughs) And they made a wine that they sold, a Chardonnay they sold for $12 a bottle, which was an outrageously huge price at that time.
0: That is, I mean, that's what the BV Reserve Cab was about twelve dollars. Was it? Yeah, I think so, maybe fifteen. <laughs> um, so you guys started Long Vineyards, growing Chardonnay and Riesling.
1: First vintage was seventy-seven. It was at Trefefin because we had no winery, and all we really had was about a dozen barrels. Which so it was our first barrel fermentation experience. And we were so pleased with that that we built a small winery at Long Vineyards up on Pritchard Hill and continued starting in nineteen seventy eight to make Chardonnay, all of the Chardonnay there, and the Riesling.
0: Yeah, I love it. So you're growing you're making Chardonnay and Riesling up on Pritchard Hill, which today's listeners know Pritchard Hill is a great spot for Cabernet. And it is, but um... It was a great spot for Chardonnay. You told me that north-facing yeah. and you had some wonderful, wonderful plant material, you said, in that vineyard. You it told was,
1: ones. well, first of all, it came from other vineyards. Okay. And we don't know exactly which because Rudy, the crafter, knew all the vineyards and he acquired the Chardonnay material.
0: And you don't know where he got it, Right.
1: I know he got some from McRae, and I Stony think Hill. He, Stony Hill. I think he got some from Martini. Okay, but it was um, it was a clone that had small grapes, small crops, and it was diverse. I, I realized that when my husband Phil and I went through one of the vineyards. And we, Bob had wanted to plant a new vineyard. I wanted to make sure that it duplicated this other vineyard, which had made such great wine. So Phil and I went through 12, two rows of that other vineyard, and we tasted every vine, and we decided there were about five different flavors <laughs> wow. apple, citrus, spice. Mm-hmm. And so we labeled the grapes and we counted the different flavors and translated that into percentage. So Bob knew what vines were what flavors and what percent they should be planted in the new vineyard.
0: When you replant the new vineyard. Which he did. That's painstaking job. That's amazing you guys it did was, that.
1: It was amazing. And I did it because I had made... Long Vineyards clone existed... Um, had been taken from Long Vineyards into several other vineyards. One of them was Larry Hyde's vineyard. And he selected the plant material. And then ultimately when I was at SEMI, I purchased those grapes and made wine from them. And I knew that the wine from the grapes that he selected was different from the Long Vineyard Chardonnay. And once we went through that walk yeah. yeah. and saw the diversity, I understood why. Because That's... in his uh, selections, he was probably selecting for healthy plant material or good-looking vines. And I don't think any of us were cognizant enough of the variety of flavors that we could have said to Larry, you have to do it differently. I mean, his wine, his grapes are wonderful, but they're not as complex as Long Vineyards was. You
0: had a special thing going. That's so neat. We
1: had a special thing going. The wines are beautiful. Because I remember
0: I'd, I'd come across some of those <laughs> bottles, older bottles, because dad, my dad had them in his cellar because, you know, he, he knew you guys and uh, they were delicious, they were really complex. Um. But also, something I wanted to talk about that I just found okay. out about in doing some research on you was something called the American Vineyard Foundation, which was formed in 78. And you had a big part in that foundation.
1: Yes, founding. it was. Uh, I, was <clears throat> I was on the board of the American Society of Phenology and Viticulture. And we were looking for ways to finance research. I don't know how the idea emerged. I don't remember. But I took hold of it, informed the foundation, got its 501c3 status, um, conceived the process for the fundraising, and the ACV picked it up and ran with it. Uh, Our industry at that time wasn't um, generous with, money for research. People were too busy trying to make their businesses run and Mm -hmm. figuring out how to make good wine and sell it. But I understand that it's still going strong.
0: doing great. Uh, We cut a nice big check to them every year. Basically, most of us are part of this. It's called the American Vineyard Foundation, and basically we pay a certain amount of money per tonne grown or per acre grown or per ton crushed as a winery, whether you're a grower or a winery. But it's a, a lot of money that goes straight to the foundation and they distribute grants for research and we need research all the time. There's always a new pest, there's always new this, there's you know, different ways to skin the cat out there in the vineyard. So we need that research and it's been great. Thank you very much for doing that. Appreciate it.
1: Well, it is true. It's amazing to me. I, I have such respect for farmers because over the years I've seen all of these new little creatures, <laughs> yeah. insects, or virus, or bacteria emerge to challenge the vineyards. Very uh, much it's, so. It's, it's, it's
0: complicated, and it's ongoing. You, yes. You, as soon as you um, get ahead of one issue, there's another one. Yes, so, I know. We all know that. So, 1979. I just finished my fifth year at Davis, got a degree in winemaking, grape growing, and uh, stayed the next year to get teaching credential. because so I was on my way to teach junior high school in Tucson, Arizona. So I had a free summer. So I got a summer job. I was a tour guide at Robert Mondavi Winery <laughs> in the summer of 1979. Wow! And we, we
1: crossed paths. We crossed
0: paths because, well, even if you'd been there, I don't think I would have seen you because you're in the back of the house and right. I'm in the front. But so what happened in 79?
1: As I've mentioned, I hit the glass ceiling at Mm -hmm. Madafi because it's a family-run company. And I'd really worked in most parts of of the winemaking business, except for the vineyard work. And I was approached by a recruiter from Simi Winery who wanted to hire me as winemaker for Simi. And I decided to make that move, which happened in 79. I did my first vintage at Simi in 79, but I wanted to do more. And it offered me the opportunity to source the grapes for the winery, to make the harvest decisions, to work with the growers, and also, on top of that, they wanted to build a new fermentation cellar. And I would have the responsibility for the design and oversight of the of the building of the fermentation cellar. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. It was. It was. <laughs> what it required was to think about the winemaking process for each of the wines that Simi made and think about what equipment and tanks and barrels we needed and how to locate them through the cellar i worked with an engineer
0: production you know I've, i love production challenges I, that's always been my favorite thing it's like okay how can we skin this cat there's got to <laughs> be a way we've got to get this wine to that wine to this tank da, 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 da. i mean um the guy who trained me randy mason was a master at and that was i think i just got the bug and over the years with Elias, I think we have something that's, it's, you know, and we'll go home. It's hilarious. We'll go home. It's like, oh, we can't, we haven't solved it. And we'll both show up the next day and he'll have a solution and I'll have a different solution, <laughs> which is really kind of fun. So it's which one works best. Um, so while you're at CME, you work with a lot of people. Your names come up. Paul Hobbs has been in here. Dave Ramey. I, what's your What's your secret? Do you just go find these these people and mentor them, or they just come to you? I mean, you f- you find some great talent.
1: I how have. Just, I, I always have. have. Uh, it. Mandavi Jean Viev worked yes, for me. Yes. Paul Hobbs. That's how I knew Paul worked for me. Several other winemakers, but I was raised, if you put it that way, at a winery. Robert Mendeve, he where the, the owner, Bob Mandavi, was focused on making great wine. And he was convinced that Napa Valley had the grapes to do it. So our focus was always, how do we make the wine better? And when I encountered the vineyards, I was thinking the same thing. Now, when you're buying grapes, you don't necessarily have the ability to control the vineyard, but you can't make suggestions. Mm -hmm. However, when I started at Seamy, I didn't know enough about vineyard to even make suggestions. I did know enough to be able to look at the vineyard and taste the grapes and figure out that they might suit us, and sometimes they would, and sometimes they wouldn't. But I was more aware of how little I knew.
0: And Knowing you, that, was, that would be something you were going to fix one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that, because, um, you know, time goes on. I think you and Bob parted company, divorced at some point, and then you remarried Phil. Phil Fries, correct? Yes. Yeah. Bob
1: and I divorced, but we did keep running long vineyards. That's right, you did. Uh, until the time. vineyards closed. And when did that when did it close? Oh, it was in the mid 2000s. Okay. When his father sold the land. Got it.
0: And then but meanwhile, you met Phil Fries. Right. How that
1: happened? I met Phil he'd gotten his PhD in biochemistry and biophysics at UC Davis and decided he didn't want to teach and he had started working for a vineyard that was supplying a lot of grapes to Rockman Davi, so I first met him as a grape supplier. Got it. And uh, and we became friends. That we were both married at that time. And then when I moved to Simi, he was also supplying grapes to Simi. And but what what happened that was to me so important was my drive to figure out what was going in the vineyards led me to start a group called the Napa Valley um, Vineyards Research Group. Okay, And that group was about eight wineries. It included Beringer, Christian Brothers, Mondavi, um, Phelps, Jordan, See me. This was around 1980, vineyards were being planted. People were looking for ways to improve the quality of their wines. And <clears throat> we had a lot of unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. So each person was tasked with contributing $4,000 a year to UC Davis to fund research in the connection between the vineyard and the winery. What can you do in the vineyard to enhance the quality of the wines? Mm -hmm. And we looked at rootstock and clones. We looked at uh, training systems, trellis systems. We looked at road direction, vine spacing. um, And we developed a lot of knowledge through doing that. That project ran, I'm guessing, for 10 years. And we shared all that information. At the same time, Richard Smart came through uh, about 1980 and spoke at the ACV conference. I
0: remember Richard Smart. Australian their yes. culture is brilliant. Brilliant. And always just Great new ideas, but okay. Well, he
1: said at that time, he said all your vineyards in Napa Valley yeah. are trellised wrong. That's right. I I'll never that. forget that. And of course, now they're all different.
0: <laughs> yeah, he did not. He did not hold back. He right. told it like he was. Yeah, or at least according to him. <clears throat> and he he consults all over the world too. Yeah. Still. Well, he
1: stimulated some change.
0: Yes. And uh,
1: <laughs> when I moved to Simi. Phil left his job uh, working for the vineyards that were supplying grapes to Mondavi and started uh, running the viticulture program at Robert Mandavi and became their vice president of wine growing. That's right. And through the research that our group did and his own research in Mondavi, he was able to go into their growers' vineyards and actually make suggest, specific suggestions about how to change their practices to enhance the wine.
0: I remember that because I remember Mandavi had a program, I didn't know it was Phil, but they had a program where they were out in the vineyards talking to growers a lot because once in a while I would try to Steal a grower from Mondavi, but it didn't work out very well. <laughs> but, but but I'd hear it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm sure think, it didn't.
1: You know, well, <laughs> Phil was it, cagey. He, well, yeah. he he had to buy all the grapes too.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, so he's doing all the contracts. Yeah, that's great. But uh, no, and and but at the time, I, I I met Phil a couple times, but I'd hear him speak at seminars and gatherings and things like that. But he was one of the guys. He's you know, as far as knowing what to do in the vineyard. He was the guy, so. He was the guy, and yeah. he still is. Still is. Yep. So. so you're still at CME, you're there, and you're VP of, winemaker VP starting out, then you moved up the ranks. Did you become president at some point?
1: I did. I, I, I said that when I interviewed for the job, I told them I didn't just want to be a winemaker, I wanted to be vice president winemaker. This was not a big business, <laughs> but I put it out there. And I also said that eventually if the possibility came along, I might like to consider being president, which, of course, I wasn't really interested in at that time. But it seemed like a good thing just to say it.
0: Well, I think that was a good move. And it worked out. It did
1: work out. Huh? You became president. Yeah, I did. I worked as a winemaker for 10 years. You... Um, asked earlier how I came to acquire such good assistance. Right. And I think it was um, several things. I was looking for people who had good, strong education, who had worked for good wineries, Um, ideally had worked overseas. Okay. So people that had... A, a drive to excel.
0: I gotta interrupt you. Why overseas? I'm curious.
1: This wasn't quite so true at that time, but since I was at SEMI and and hiring people, that was the 80s. In the 70s, mm-hmm. you could sell any wine you made. In the 80s, <laughs> ah. in the 80s, we begin to learn about wine growing. But I felt that someone who worked with me needed to have a broad vision of the world. First of all, they needed to know that there were different ways of doing things. That just because we did something one way, that doesn't mean it was the right way or the only way. Because I always learned a lot. I traveled overseas visiting wineries and vineyards frequently. Mm Starting in 1973, I traveled to Germany. 76, I traveled to Bordeaux and Burgundy with Andre Tchelistcheff mm-hmm. and a group of uh, wineries wine from Napa Valley, and I really valued those experiences. You yeah. get you get ideas, you hear perspectives, and right. of course, nowadays we know that what works for the winery down the road may not work for you because you have your vineyards and your style and your issues. And so what, what's good for you in terms of procedures and facilities and people may not be good for someone else.
0: Spot on. I, I am reminded about this all the time. I treasure our place and our grapes and our location and what the wines they make. And um, that's what we do, and we do it really well. I was walking through the cellar this morning, we've got some hillside tanks fermenting. Elias goes, hey. I go, what? He goes, hey, turn. He hands me a beaker and he goes, try this. Because, you know, my days of daily winemaker are long gone. And I smelled this beaker, it's it's Cabernet, it's probably about 5% sugar, it's just wrapping up. And it's just, Zelma, it was like I smelled it and I tasted it, I looked at him, I said, oh man. He goes, yeah, I go, I just had memories like, I can't tell you come flooding back. Mm -hmm. Of all those years making wine and checking those, you know, the sugars once or twice a day during fermentation and pump it over more, when to press it, when to go to barrel, and, but, but the aroma of Cabernet off these hills, right outside this door here, when it's just about done fermenting, I mean, it's embedded in my being. Wow. And it's like, he's, I just, it was totally just, he goes, hey, try this. I go, oh man, that's Sunspot. He goes, yeah, that's Sunspot. I go, every year? He goes, yeah, every year. Hmm. You know, we know what it's like. So, I'm sorry, I just went off on a tangent, but it's just, um, it's what we do.
1: It is. And I think that's What's attractive, fascinating, extraordinary about our business Mm -hmm. is, in essence, we're tuned into the fact that each piece of land produces different characters and flavors, and it's our job to support that land in doing it and to... um, preserve and enhance those flavors in the winery. But it's different every year, and it's different with each plot of land. So you never get bored with your job. And then it's two different (laughs) jobs. You know, at harvest, you're just working all the time. Uh, Everything has to be done immediately. Grapes can't wait to be harvested. They have to be harvested when they're ready. Mm-hmm. You can't really plan. You just respond to the situation. To me, that's a very different way of working. It's respond and mm-hmm. act. The rest of the year, when you're bottling wines and so on, mm-hmm. you can plan. Right. But not at harvest. It's very exciting. It's like two different jobs.
0: It is. At least it's predictable. So you know, <laughs> you know when it's going. Um, I talked to a friend of mine who's a lawyer, attorney, he does trial work. He says, you know, you just never know when it's coming. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. he goes, at least Schaefer, you get, you know you know, when it, that, you know when the busy time's coming. <laughs> when harvest yeah, is exactly. coming. exactly. <laughs> it's a pretty good point. So, Simi, you were at Simi for 20 years, 79 right. to 99. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what happened. You moved on.
1: Well, <clears throat> at the end of 99, is that what you're asking? hmm Well, Phil and I... I have to go back, actually, to 1990 when I was invited to South Africa okay. by the Cape State wine producers. And they had come through to visit the winery, just as casual winemakers come through, um, sometime in the previous year. Mm-hmm. And I'd taken them on a tour and done a tasting and hosted right. lunch like you do for people in your business. And apparently they had liked what they saw, but they also had, and I found this out much later, they'd visited other wineries who were not very hospitable. Okay. And that was during apartheid. Okay. And I think that's why, but I never thought about that. I thought, you know, yeah. these are wine people. They're wine people. So. A, any rate, they sent me a letter and said, we'd like you to come over and talk about the use of barrels in winemaking. They were pretty much out of touch with the, what was going on in the rest of the world okay. on wine. And Phil and I were engaged at that time, and we talked. And we said, yeah, let's go together. We'll um, take a vacation sure. after. And so I told them that he was coming, and they're like, oh, great. We'll bring you both, and we'll do a full-day seminar on winemaking and wine growing. So we did that. The two of us did a full-day presentation. It was fun. And then we went to three different areas in the wine country where we would meet informally with winemakers. They would bring their wines. We'd taste them together, talk about them. And um, I've, we've, we found some wines, most particularly Sauvignon Blanc, that was just fabulous, and good red wines, but we thought these wines could be better. Huh. And we felt that the environment there, the um, soils, ancient soils, and the fact that the Cape is surrounded by ocean. So uh-huh. it was a maritime climate with old soils, and we thought, and also huh. lots of mountains. So there wasn't any big span of, of vineyards, like where you could plant 300 acres. Mm-hmm. The, the vineyards that were there were 10 acres, 20 acres, and they were all different because they had different aspects, you know, different soils. Mm-hmm. Different uh, elevations, and there were. It seemed like there were a lot of possibilities. So I was just like, "You hear me?" I was just like, "Ooh, this is, this is really cool. yeah. something could be done here." Huh. And um, so we left, but with enthusiasm behind us. We, of course, were not enthusiastic about apartheid, right? But we were there at a very critical time. We were there January of 1990 in February of 1990 uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and that was the beginning of the change and if anyone wants to read a book about a great man he wrote um a long walk to freedom which is just an he was an extraordinary person hmm. Um, and so we were able in our ensuing time in South Africa to see those social changes, thank goodness. Hmm. But nonetheless, I was I was excited about the wines and the, more about the potential than the wines themselves. And then I – so I think because of my enthusiasm, I was invited back to uh, – Two different years to be a judge for South African Airways. Okay. So the wineries would put their wines in for sale. And and in doing that, I was able to taste a lot of different wines and meet a lot of different people. Phil and I went over in the mid-90s to an international conference. And I said to him, you know... I think we're going to run out of people to pay our way back and forth. <laughs> Why did you get some consulting clients? So he did. And that was 1996. And so he has consulted for many of the top wineries in South Africa. Oh, that's great. But And one of them approached us in 97 and asked if we would be interested in in a joint venture. So this was 97. I was going to retire in a couple years. So it seemed like a good time to start something new. I
0: see. And so that was the the Villavante project? That was
1: the Villavante project. We bought um, 100 acres of raw land. Uh, Villavante was one of the soil types. Okay. And uh, our partner at that time, Baxberg, Phil laid out the vineyard uh, we agreed on what varieties to plant. We agreed that Bordeaux varietals were the ones that were going to work well mm-hmm. in the site we had and sell well in the future. And they were also varieties that we were very comfortable in working with. People asked us why we didn't do Pinotage. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Pinotage is a very specific... Um, south african grape which is tricky to manage and Mm -hmm. we wanted to work with something we felt we could do very well so phil laid out the vineyard and all the technical details uh, michael back planted and that was the start of our program our first harvest was 2003
0: wow So you were, were did you live over there for a while or were you just back and forth? we just back and forth. Because for some reason I thought you guys were both living over there.
1: (laughs) Well, we have always gone over, uh, our harvest is in February, so we've always gone over, Phil goes over in early January and leaves at the end of Feb. I go over in late January and leave in middle to the end of March. So okay. between the two of us, we cover a, a lot of territory and spend a lot of time. And then for many years, we returned in their winter or summer for a couple of weeks. And then we returned as we are getting ready to do in november to blend the vintage so this november i'll be blending the 2019 vintage that we made in february
0: how fun you're still making wine look at you yeah so you've got that going and um that's been going for gosh over 10 years I think over That has
1: been going for 22
0: years. 22 years? Oh, I'm, I'm a decade off. That's, <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. And meanwhile, you, you consulted with lots of different wineries around the world, actually, over the I years. I want to just back up and tell sure. you
1: something about Villafonte. We did that project because we could build our own vineyard and wines from scratch together. And we could invest our expertise in an area that we thought could make great wines. And we wanted to make great wines. And we wanted to make wines of international significance. This year, a wine judge in South Africa entered our 2016 Series C, which is a Cabernet-based blend, into the Six Nations Wine Challenge. It's a wine challenge where each nation has a judge who decides what top wines should be entered in this competition. So this is South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, Chile, and the United States. And we won the trophy in the Bordeaux category of that competition. Wow. Congratulations. we have done... You've done it. What we wanted to do. We've had lots of um, recognition in South Africa and Europe, but that's really, in a sense, the first global um, recognition that we've gotten. So I just wanted to mention it because we're so pleased. I'm glad you
0: mentioned it. Good for you. You work with a lot of work. A lot of work. Well, that's how dreams come true. Yeah. That's a lot of work. work. Persistence, (laughs) focus. So, are you still consulting with many, many people?
1: No. Um, I have two clients currently. I stopped focusing on consulting in 2009 mm-hmm. when I decided to go back to school and get my PhD. And I didn't really have the time. Okay. So, so I've carried a few clients along.
0: Okay. But you mentioned this when we were walking in the door today. You, you're, you're writing your dissertation right now.
1: I'm it's finishing my dissertation. Finishing yep. dissertation.
0: A PhD. And so one would think, geez, it has to do with wine, right? It's got to be... People too.
1: They yeah. think that.
0: So what are you doing? You um, went back to my, school.
1: I am majoring in performance with a minor in Native American studies. And my dissertation is called The Performance and Transmission of Art in a 6th generation Native American family of artists, wow! I was—I—I—I I, I wanted to do—to do art. Art has always been a side passion for okay. me. When okay. we went to Tibet, we loved Tibetan art. In South Africa, we know uh, South African artists, and so of course, I'm always an optimist. I went over to Davis. And a thinking that I could major in art with no, get a PhD. I didn't want to just, you know, right. study it. I want a PhD. No previous um, training right. or education in art, none, zero. And I met this wonderful professor who said to me in Ozoma, why don't you major in performance? And in that way, you can look at the performance of artists, how they do what they do and what they've done. And in fact, my interest is in the artist. How do they how do they do it? Where do the ideas come from? You know, how do they see huh. where's that creative energy come right, from? Right, right, right. And at the same time, I've always been interested in Native Americans. Okay. Starting when my parents gave me a turquoise bracelet. From the Southwest. That'll do it. Right. So that's. Um, I, that was time consuming. Just a whole new. Just,
0: just expand your horizons.
1: Well, I told you that I thought when. I'd spent my whole uh, life in science and agriculture mm-hmm. and thought, well, you know, I should r- round out my knowledge with uh, focusing on liberal arts. Mm-hmm. So that was the interest in art, and that thinking about wanting to have a complete education. I'm with you in experience,
0: and but you do know though that you just told me you had no no experience in art, no education in art, but you've been an artist for a long, long time. That's true. Beautiful wines. That's true.
1: <laughs> and she uh, she actually mm-hmm. said to me. You know, you could do your Ph.D. studying the performance of winemakers. Mm. I certainly could have,
0: yeah. but I wanted to do something new. Oh, me too. I, yeah, I have no too many winemakers. <laughs> 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 oh, Zalma, this is great. Hey, if, if people out there want to find some of your wines or Villavante wines, is there a way to do that? Easily yes, for them? How would they do it? E-
1: easily. There's a website okay. called Cape Arter Cape okay. Arder okay. C-A-P-E, Arder A-R-D-O-R. A-R-D-O-R oh, perfect. Uh, dot com. Okay, good. And that carries uh, a large selection of South African wines, Always including ours. Good. And you know, as you know, it's wonderful to have a place you can point to where people can get your wine. That's what people
0: write me about. They say, hey, you just talked to so and so, we forgot to tell us where to get their wine. So yeah. that's why we do it. Good.
1: Capearter.com.
0: Capearter.com.
1: Villa Villafonte. And we make two wines a Series C, which is a Cabernet based wine that also has um, Merlot and Cab Franc with oh. a little bit of Malbec, and Series M, which is about two-thirds Merlot and Malbec with the foundation of Cabernet.
0: Perfect. Sounds good.
1: Ah, one more. One more. Seriously Old Dirt is our wine that we make from young vineyards (laughs) and from press wine, and it's delicious.
0: Our wines are delicious. Delicious is what it's all about. That's the goal. It's actually called Seriously Old Dirt is the the name of the wine.
1: And the reason...
0: I like that name.
1: ...is because when Phil first saw this property, he said, this is Seriously Old Dirt. (laughs) And our partner, Mike, who's the marketing and sales and manager... I thought that was a good name for a label, and he's right. (laughs) That's
0: great. I love it. Uh, Say hi to Phil for me. I'm going too. And thank you so much for coming It was great. It's
1: been a pleasure. Thanks.
0: If you enjoy great wines from Napa and Sonoma, one of those you need to thank is Zelma Long. She was right there in the 70s and early 80s, helping to push this industry to do better in the vineyard and in the cellar. I'm so glad she made the time to come over and record the podcast. And she's not just a pioneer from way back. She's still in the game, still making wine, still pushing for something better. I hope you get a chance to track down some of her wines. In the meantime, thanks very much for downloading The Taste. If you want to help us out, please rate and review it on iTunes, as that helps other people find the podcast. If you'd like to reach us with any comments or ideas, please send us an email at podcast at com.